Hello and welcome to Moniker, the histories and mysteries of names, the show that brings out the spirit of wonder in the child in all of us. Old Saint Nick, Chris Kringle, Sinterklaas, call him whatever you want, just don't call him late for dinner or cookies. He's Santa Claus. On this festive episode in the chilly month of December, we will be diving into the many names of our favorite non-denominational Christmas character, Santa Claus. We'll pick apart the histories and mysteries behind three of his merrymaking monikers, St. Nicholas, Kris Kringle, and Father Christmas. Did you believe in Santa when you were a kid? For so many Americans, Santa plays such an outsized role in the world of kiddom. It's like school, cartoons, your birthday, Santa. It makes me think of how in one of my favorite podcasts, You Are Good, which check it out, it is amazing, the hosts were talking about how a huge portion of childhood revolves around dinosaurs for seemingly no reason. It certainly doesn't carry over into adulthood. In the same way, if you looked at a pie chart of what kids think about, write about, dream about, etc. during their childhoods, a huge slice of that would be devoted to Santa Claus. And kids relate to the myth differently. It seems like there are several different types of kid, each with its own specific relationship to the Santa idea. There's A, the basic under seven-year-old or so who gets great joy from believing in the story and believes in it wholeheartedly. B, the kid who doesn't believe anymore because a mean older kid told them that Santa isn't real, and they deal with that disappointment by becoming a jaded iconoclast. C, the kid who doesn't believe anymore because of some semi-traumatic discovery, like they find their dad passed out under the tree dressed as Santa or something. This kid may also decide that they no longer believe in fathers anymore. And D, the slightly older kid, say seven plus, who believes in Santa to an embarrassing degree, made more ridiculous by, like, them making super thought-out arguments about time zones or alternate universes or something. I fell into the latter category. I'm not sure when exactly I stopped believing in Santa or what prompted it, but I do know that the proximity to puberty was a little too close for comfort. But hey, look at me now. I have a podcast with tens of listeners. So hang in there, kids. Maybe someday you too will achieve such greatness. In any case, something I always wondered during my far too long devotion to Santa was why he had so many names. I knew, of course, about the historical St. Nicholas, but how and where did he pick up so many identities in the years between Ancient Saint and Coca-Cola mascot? And did all of these Santa-adjacent names and characters come from transmutations of St. Nicholas, or was it something else? Well, my friends, if we're going to get to the bottom of the chimney of of this problem, we're going to need... A hypothesis. Hear ye, hear ye! We shall now read the hypothesis! Thank you, Squire. As with every episode, this is the part of our show where I put forth a hypothesis for our naming question. In the end, we'll see if I'm right 
or if it's coal in my stocking. Let's see. So St. Nicholas obviously comes from the historic St. Nicholas, who I believe was Slavic. But I do wonder if that, in fact, was his real name or if it was given to him by the Catholic Church after he was canonized, kind of like how monarchs have reinal names, maybe something like that. Father Christmas makes me think of the UK, so that would be my guess as far as where it originates. It sounds really old, so the use could be based on a pagan figure. It's possible that during the Protestant Reformation, when veneration of the saints was discouraged, people Protestantized St. Nicholas to Father Christmas so they could still celebrate his feast day. Kris Kringle is a complete mystery to me. My only assumption is that it was part of a mid-century advertising campaign that, for copyright reasons or something, couldn't use Santa Claus. Like, maybe Coca-Cola had already copyrighted Santa Claus. I don't know. It definitely seems like something created by a committee. Okay, there we are. I am satisfied. These will be my hypotheses. St. Nicholas was a name bestowed by the Catholic Church onto the historical figure when he was sainted. Father Christmas is the Protestant version of St. Nicholas, and Kris Kringle is a creation of Don Drapers on Madison Avenue. All right. Our hypothesis is in the bag, and we're ready to take off in our sleigh of research. Little is known for sure about the real-life person who would eventually become St. Nicholas. There's mention of a Nicholas in attendance at the pivotal Council of Nicaea in the 4th century, but it's like from an ancient account of an account, so it's really difficult to verify, and it's been hotly disputed. Most of the halfway credible history we have of St. Nicholas's life comes from a collection of tales assembled by a Greek monk named Michael the Archimandrite in the 8th or 9th century. According to Michael and the accounts of other historians, Nicholas was born in the 270s AD in a province called Lycia that was then part of the Roman Empire and is now part of Turkey. His parents were wealthy landowners known for their piety and generosity to the needy. The birth of Nicholas was considered a miracle as his parents were advanced in age. A lot of comparisons were made between these two and biblical patriarchs like Abraham and Sarah, who miraculously had kids later in life. He was christened Nicholas, which means people's victory in Greek. Just think about how, like, Nike is the goddess of victory. This was also the name of his uncle, who was the abbot of a nearby monastery. Christianity was enjoying a little breathing room from the Romans during this time. Roving mobs would still lynch believers occasionally, but it wasn't openly encouraged by the Roman government. Nicholas and his family were likely part of a small house church community that met privately, but not necessarily in secret. Interestingly, the town in Lycia where they lived, Parada, was one of the stops St. Paul made during his many missions. Tragedies struck Nicholas when he was about 13 years old. A plague swept through their region, and both of his parents died. 
He went to live with his uncle at the monastery and decided to train to become a priest. As part of his change in lifestyle, he resolved to give away all his possessions and the money from his inheritance. Remember, his parents were very, very well off. The creative ways Nicholas divested himself of his wealth became some of the most beloved stories about him. One of the most popular tales that may be true, may be legend, centers around a family with three daughters who have fallen on hard times. The father is newly poor and distraught because he can't pay for the dowries of his three marriage-age daughters, and it's possible that one or more of them will end up having to be sold in some kind of servitude or prostitution so that one or the other of the other sisters can have a dowry and actually marry. So, really high stakes. Over the course of three nights, Nicholas was able to secretly and anonymously give three bags of gold to the family for each of the daughter's dowries. You know, I mean, you can see where the anonymous gift-giving stuff becomes kind of part of his brand. The story became part of church lore as St. Nicholas and the Three Maidens, which feels one part fairy tale and one part parable. Interesting. Nicholas grew in reputation as a beloved member of the church community, and when the elderly Bishop of Mira died, which is a town nearby, he was elected to take his place. In his appointment, we see more instances of divine intervention in his life and career that may or may not be apocryphal. We don't really know. Nevertheless, Nicholas became the bishop. Presumably while he was really young, because he was often referred to as the boy bishop. In 303 AD, Roman Emperor Galerius began a brutal campaign against Christians who refused to worship the emperor and Roman gods. Christians who were even suspected of dissent were captured by Roman soldiers and killed or made to endure the most brutal tortures imaginable. We're talking super horrific stuff like being cut up and fed to animals, having reeds jammed under your nails, being made to swallow molten lead, just real rough. Nicholas was among those captured, and he spent years being tortured in a Roman prison. In 311 AD, Galerius realized that his persecution campaign wasn't working, as even the pagans were starting to get upset. He then passed the Edict of Toleration, making Christianity a legal religion in the empire. Nicholas was released, much to the jubilation of his church community in Myra. From then on, people from all over the region came to Nicholas for advice, healing, and prayer. His endurance in the face of such brutal persecution made him a venerated figure, and his generosity and kindness to children and the needy made him beloved. Now, it makes sense given that Myra was a coastal town on the Mediterranean that deeds of Nicholas were shared amongst mariners. This would lead to him eventually becoming a patron saint of sailors. According to one legend, Nicholas appeared to a group of sailors caught on the shoals during a powerful storm. He helped them using expert sailing techniques and then disappeared once they were freed from danger. 
the spread of the legends about St. Nicholas, particularly among sailors, he became imbued more and more with supernatural abilities. When the sailors in this and other legends ask him during the story how he got there or how he appeared, he always says something to the effect that when your mind is focused on serving God, you're given a sort of clairvoyance, wherein you can see and hear when people need help. And presumably you can appear when and where you're needed. Okay. I'm beginning to see where Santa Claus got his omniscience. You know, the he sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake kind of thing. Although St. Nick comes to help out, Santa comes to surveil and judge. Much like my cat. As was common with early church figures, Nicholas' journey to sainthood didn't happen through a formalized process of canonization. Apostles and champions of the faith in the early church became known as saints by tradition for hundreds of years until the Catholic Church formalized the criteria for sainthood. It wouldn't be until the Middle Ages that the power to canonize saints would be under the complete purview of the Pope. Nicholas was venerated as a saint by the Byzantine emperors who converted the empire to Christianity. This included Justinian I, who had a magnificent church built in commemoration of St. Nicholas' wonderful deeds. The Eastern Orthodox Church seemed really attached to St. Nicholas, which probably had to do with the fact that he lived and served in their territory. You know, Constantinople is in modern-day Turkey, and so was St. Nicholas. Because who doesn't love a homegrown hero? After the Great Schism split the church into Eastern and Western factions, St. Nicholas seems like he became kind of a mascot for the Eastern Greek half. Again, this was probably because he was from their side of that divide. St. Nicholas became the patron saint of both Russia and Greece. In Russia, this was probably because the region adopted Orthodox Christianity under the rule of Vladimir I. And if you remember that from our Russian princes episode, that was where Vladimir was like, Christianity is really great and you can still drink. So we can't be Muslims because the Russians love to drink. Christianity it is. In the 1200s, French Catholics began to mark December 6th as the feast day of St. Nicholas. And this date is still celebrated in various Catholic and Orthodox communities around the world to this day, although the Eastern Orthodox Church celebrates his feast day on December 19th. And I'm not sure why that's the case, but I think it has to do with different ecclesiastical calendars. So there you have it. St. Nicholas was a real person, and he was really named Nicholas. And why was he named Nicholas? Because he was as Greek as an olive stuffed with feta. Let's continue our journey through Santa Land with a look at another ancient favorite, Father Christmas. Is this character connected with St. Nicholas, or does he completely come out of left field? Let's find out. It's possible that Father Christmas, taking the form of an old man, goes back to pre-Christian Yuletide celebrations of the Anglo-Saxons. In midwinter, 
tribes would hold a festival in honor of Woden, which is the Anglo-Saxon way of saying Odin. It's said that Woden would fly across the sky on a horse with eight legs heralding a great yearly hunt. The celebrations involve feasting, drinking, and decorating with mistletoe and holly. Definitely some familiar territory there. Another reason people link Woden with Father Christmas is that Odin is sometimes called the Old Father. Although there's lots of debate about the connection between Father Christmas and Woden, because the Anglo-Saxons' conversion to Christianity in the 600s predates the arrival of the Vikings in the 900s, who brought Norse traditions. There's definitely similarities, of course, but a trajectory isn't clear. Let's take a really quick digression to talk about what ancient Christmas celebrations looked like in the British Isles. We think of Christmas as being synonymous with childhood, but that's actually a very recent phenomenon. For much of Christmas history, the feasting, drinking, and celebrating was centered around the pleasure and amusement of adults. It was more like Mardi Gras than the wholesome season we know today. Quick note, although various scholars have linked Christmas celebrations of antiquity to the Roman festival of Saturnalia, which is also kind of like a Bacchanalia kind of thing, this is heavily disputed. Just like the Woden connection, it's a possibility, but very much up for debate. In Christmases of the Middle Ages, things kept going crazy. People began to appoint lords of misrule, who were pranksters presiding over decadent parties in aristocratic houses. They were given names like Captain Christmas, and were generally seen as personifications of the hedonism of the holiday. Kind of like frat party witch doctors. But they were meant to be Christmas come to life, essentially. Throughout Tudor England, the human representatives of Christmas, those not involving the saints or the Bible, were sexy young people pulling pranks. It wasn't until a play in 1616 that we get the first example of Christmas embodied in an old person. The play was called Christmas, His Mosque, and was written by Ben Jonson, who was a court poet under the reign of the Stuarts. A mosque, in this context, is not like a Muslim place of worship. It was an event of spectacle and revelry in the royal courts. It was like part masquerade ball, part theater showcase, part feast. In Johnson's play, Christmas is personified as an old man with a long beard and old-fashioned clothing. He brings to the party with him his sons and daughters who have names like Mince Pie and Wassel. It's like he, being Christmas, is the progenitor of these beloved traditions represented by his children. You get it. Interestingly, some elements of this play were poking fun at Puritans, who were gaining political power at the time. This was pretty prescient because around the time of the English Civil War, Puritans pumped the brakes on the good times. In 1642, King Charles I agreed to a proposal from Parliament to have Christmas reserved as a time of fasting and quiet reflection. So no more partying, no time off work, no feasting, just monkish abstinence. The Puritans did this for a few reasons. 
One, they pointed out that nowhere in the Bible does it say to celebrate Jesus's birth through a Christmas. Also, the celebrations of Christmas were getting a little bit out of hand, as you can imagine. And also, let's face it, the Puritans didn't like fun. In the mid-1600s, many pamphlets began circulating wherein the question, where is Father Christmas, was asked. In a 1645 pamphlet, an allegorical story is told where a woman asks the Oxford town crier, where has old Father Christmas gone? And the crier replies that he's in prison preparing to be hanged. Another pamphlet from 1658 shows Father Christmas with a long white beard and fur trim robes as he is put on trial for his life. You can see how his image is starting to crystallize. With the restoration of the monarchy in the 1660s came the restoration of Christmas and all its celebrations. Father Christmas was a more established figure at this time, but he was still very adult-oriented. He mostly presided over lavish feasts with lots of drinking. He's often depicted as a man with a wreath of holly or evergreen around his head, and he's wrapped in sumptuous fur-lined robes and always surrounded by food and drink. He kind of makes me think of Dionysus. And if you remember the characterization of Christmas present in Dickens' A Christmas Carol, that's basically what Father Christmas was like at this point in history. The emphasis of family togetherness of the Victorian era resulted in a complete rebranding of Christmas celebrations, including Father Christmas. The focus shifted away from ribald adult merrymaking to wholesome rituals for children and families. Father Christmas was resurrected in literature at this time and was given the benevolent old gift-giver treatment. In 1843, the aforementioned Christmas Carol was published by Charles Dickens to enormous popularity, and that is credited, along with Queen Victoria, as having given Christmas a huge renaissance in England in the mid-1800s. I think part of the reason why Father Christmas stayed depicted as an old man was because he was a symbol of the good times now past. People in the 1800s were really nostalgic for the Christmas celebrations from before the Puritan ban, which is weird because that was like hundreds of years in the past. But it's possible that this nostalgia, as embodied by Father Christmas, was driven by the Industrial Revolution. England had become urbanized and blurry with coal fires, leaving many to yearn for the imagined simplicity of the agrarian days of yore. That's why Father Christmas is an old man, because he's from those ancient good times that are long gone. And honestly, who wants to choke on smoke in a frigid factory when you could go on a sleigh ride through the forest under the moonlight with Father Christmas? In both America and Great Britain in the 19th and 20th centuries, Father Christmas merged with Sinterklaas of the Dutch-Germanic world and the American Santa Claus to become basically what he's known as today, which is kind of the British version of Santa Claus. And a lot of this was because of globalization bringing American advertisers and media content to the UK. Still, the Brits are very attached to Father Christmas and have their own distinct traditions as part of his myth. 
So it seems like if there's any associations of Father Christmas with St. Nicholas, it's filtered through the Sinterklaas and Santa Claus pipelines. For the most part, we can say with confidence that Father Christmas comes from a physical embodiment of winter merrymaking. For our third and final Santa synonym, we will look at the very weird-sounding Kris Kringle, which, as it turns out, is way, way older than I expected. The origin of this name goes clear back to the Reformation, and Martin Luther ever heard of him? So, in the hundreds of years between the death of St. Nicholas, the actual person, and the 1500s, the Feast of St. Nicholas was observed on December 6th throughout European Christendom. Now, we already learned that, but something that was unique about German celebrations was that they involved St. Nicholas arriving in secret on Christmas Eve to bring presents to good children. And that was all well and good, but things got a little heretical when St. Nicholas merged with Christ-like imagery found in the Bible. For instance, he was said to ride in on a white horse to dole out his judgments of who's good and who's bad, just like Jesus in the book of Revelation. You can see how might be a little bit of problems there. For Martin Luther, this smacked of the worst kind of idolatry. When he launched his reforms in 1517, he spoke against the veneration of the saints, arguing that believers should focus their devotion on Christ alone. However, Luther also recognized the importance of traditions, particularly ones at Christmas. So he encouraged his followers to celebrate the Christkindl, or Christ child, and that's how you say it in German, and appreciate that he was the source of all gifts and good things. It seems like he was trying to shift the story away from a physical person giving gifts in secret and encourage a general spirit of thanksgiving towards Christ as the progenitor of all things good. And I don't think he was trying to do a find replace of the Christ child for St. Nicholas, but that's kind of what ended up happening. Unfortunately for our pal Luther, it seems like kids just started to view the Christ child as a magical annual gift giver instead of the Savior, at least in the context of Christmas. The Christmas Eve anticipation of gifts continued. When Germans began immigrating to the U.S. in the 19th and 20th centuries, they brought with them the Christmas ritual of the Christkindl, which was later corrupted into Kris Kringle. Kris Kringle merged with the Dutch immigrant Sinterklaas, the American Santa Claus, and the English immigrant's Father Christmas. It was basically just another pseudonym for the character of the elfin annual gift giver. In 1847, Kris Kringle's Christmas Tree, a Christmas present for boys and girls, was published in Philadelphia. This was a collection of poems and Christmas traditions that talked about the modern way to celebrate Christmas. Like, it talks about how it's better to have Kris Kringle put presents under a Christmas tree than in stockings over the fireplace. This is also one of the first examples we have of Christkindle being phonetically translated into the English Kris Kringle. The physical appearance of Kris Kringle is really interesting. The drawings show him as being short, round, and mischievous. He kind of looks like Rumpelstiltskin. 
It made me laugh, though, because the article I was reading said that he had a basket strapped to his back, right? And so I automatically thought that it was like the Christ child with a manger strapped to his back, wandering around vertically. And I just thought, wow, how wonderful and terrible would that be? But no, it's like a wicker basket he has on his back that he carries presents in. (laughs) The early 20th century saw Kris Kringle transform into Santa Claus's given name. Like, if Santa Claus is Batman, Kris Kringle is Bruce Wayne. The 1947 hit comedy Miracle on 34th Street played a hand in this shift. And in case you live under a rock, Miracle on 34th Street follows the kindly old department store Santa, Kris Kringle, as he goes through a court case to prove that he's the real Santa Claus. If you haven't seen it, it is just oozing with mid-century charm, so treat yourself. But it makes sense that the writer of the short story upon which that film is based would use the name Kris Kringle. It's the only one of Santa's names that sounds like it could be an actual person. Kris is, after all, a real given name. And they could have used St. Nicholas, I suppose, but one, he doesn't have a surname, and two, that would be just a wee bit sacrilegious. Although, I mean, honestly, Kris Kringle comes from Christchild, so I, I, I guess sacrilege is out the window at this point. Kris Kringle was then used for the 1970 Rankin and Bass joint, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, which starred the ever-crazy Mickey Rooney as Kris Kringle, the young man who would become Santa Claus. Now that's another good one, but only because of the Penguin Topper, and the fabulously flamboyant Winter Wizard, or Winter Warlock. And of course, the song put one foot in front of the other. Oh, this episode had me reeling, you guys. I feel like we breezed through this pretty fast, but we went through a lot of stuff. I had no idea these Santa names were so old or that they were so steeped in church tradition. Just in case you were wondering, I didn't include the name Santa Claus itself, but here's the basic through line. People in the Netherlands hung on to the Feast of St. Nicholas despite the wave of Protestantism that discouraged saint worship. And this may have been because they were under the control of the Catholic Spanish for quite some time. Anyway, a Dutch abbreviation for St. Nicholas was Sinterklaas, which was then corrupted further to Santa Claus. When the Dutch settled much of what is now New York and parts of the Northeast, they brought their Christmas fun with them. And that's where we got the common use of the name Santa Claus. The evolution of his image is a story for another day. Suffice it to say, it involves Coca-Cola. And I know that it's totally cliche to talk about how commercialized Christmas is, but my goodness, is it ever? We've somehow managed to turn a saint who suffered a horrible martyrdom and the Christ child into a way to sell Roblox. I think that the lesson to learn here is that things have the meanings we give them. And so if you want to see Santa as a way to honor your faith through gift giving, that's great. If you don't want to celebrate Santa and think he's a corporate shill for Roblox, that's fine too. 
you do you. And on that note, have a merry, merry Christmas from all of us here at Moniker, meaning me. Have a merry Christmas and a happy, happy new year. Thank you so much for joining me today on Moniker, the histories and mysteries of names. If you would like a name featured on the podcast, please email me at monikerpod at gmail.com. Until next time, my friends, farewell!